New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Are you one who has worked tirelessly for years for a better world that works for all, only to now find yourself exhausted and demoralized? Do you keep doing the work, but now it's a struggle and you've lost the joy you once had in doing it? How can we get back in touch with our resolve and delight? This will be the focus of our program today with our guest, Dr. Margaret J. Wheatley. Margaret Wheatley is an internationally acclaimed writer, speaker, and teacher. She's the co-founder and president emerita of the Burkana Institute, a charitable foundation that works with people around the world to strengthen their community. Her books include Leadership in the New Science, Perseverance, and So Far From Home, Lost and Found in Our Brave New World. Join us for the next hour as we explore where we are and where we could be going with our guest, Dr. Margaret J. Wheatley. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Meg, welcome. Well, I'm glad to be back. It's so good to have you back. Well, this is this uh, book was in some ways a tough read, but a real wake-up call. Uh, can you tell us... Um, where we are right now, how, why people are feeling so exhausted? Well, I think it's easy to acknowledge how exhausted we are. Um, I don't think that's, I haven't found that to be a problem when I'm out speaking with people. We're all exhausted. But I'm uh, more interested in uh, understanding that we're going to continue to get more and more exhausted and probably get sick uh, if we continue to struggle the way we have been struggling and thinking of our work as uh, that we're capable of changing the world or we're capable of changing a larger system or we're capable of having influence beyond our own immediate sphere of influence. I, what I'm trying to do in So Far From Home is help us understand that the work we're doing is really essential but that we'll have uh, far more capacity and far more energy and a far better time if we truly focus uh, either locally, if that's where we already are, or whatever our sphere of influence is. I just need, I had went through this as a personal experience. I had to give up my 
greatest source of frustration and exhaustion, which was believing that if I just worked a little harder, met a few more people, networked more, uh, that I would really be able to make a difference at, um, you know, the larger global level. And so we really need to rethink our work and yet also claim a much more noble identity for ourselves, for the work that we're doing. That's, that's basically uh, the thesis of the book. Let's, let's go back, let's say, to the, the 80s and 90s, and many of us started wonderful, wonderful projects, and we all felt that, okay, this is going to work. This is going to save the world. This is really the best idea, and we'll join together and we'll do it. And, and something else has been pushing the river, so to speak, there, <laughs> yes, right. and, and that we haven't noticed in some ways. There's this, this other thing happening over here, and we're, we're in a, you talk about being in denial about this river that we're actually in. So let, let's describe the river that we're in right now a little bit so that, you know, the surprise, oh, things haven't quite worked out in the way we had hoped. Well, it's a river that's filled with some very negative currents. It's filled with increasing the current of increasing polarization, uh, fear of difference, fear of the other, fear of the stranger. And we're really being manipulated all the time, I think, both by politicians and the media, primarily to to fear each other. So that's a very strong dynamic. It's also um, the pace of life. This is a very strong current. We don't have time. We're overwhelmed with tasks and uh, minutia. Um, work has become, uh, you know, a real drive but not very meaningful for most people. We're just trying to get through our to-do list uh, each day. And as uh, this current of rushing, rushing somewhere, um, you know, people are starting to question, so why am I doing all this? Why is, you know, my life so frantic? Why is my weekend just rushing around for kids' events? Why is there no time for quiet and for reflection? So the pace of life um, is is significantly contributing to a sense of meaninglessness. And part of that also is that we are very distracted at this point. We're distracted because we're always online, we're always texting, we're always on the phone. We're not present for where we are. Wherever we are, we take our own private life with us. Um, But we're in constant communication around the most superficial, trivial things. And that that quality of distraction actually destroys our higher mentor, mental qualities, such as being able to remember things, to concentrate, to reflect. And without those higher qualities, we then lose the ability to make judgments, to figure out what's right and what's wrong. Um, we descend into this highly, I mean, this is another current in the river, is the culture of opinions and instant criticism and judgment that's getting cattier and cattier. Um, If you watch any television shows that have talk show hosts or now news reporters, it's it's very uh, smarmy. That's a nice old word that I think really works these days. 
Uh, we're just trying to find fault and criticize and take each other down. Well, that's that's a horrible environment for for kids right now, for teens, especially when you're so vulnerable to that. Um, and then another current is our headlong grasping for happiness, which we mistake for thinking that it's going to be in material goods. Now, a lot of people have commented on that, so I won't, I will, I'll put it out there, but um, I'm myself observing that we're very distracted, we're very um, critical and judgmental and opinionated, we don't have time, period, and so our relationships are suffering, our thinking, our thought processes have just about disappeared, um, and then the practices by which we would find peace and renewal, um, practices of reflection, prayer, meditation, contemplation, those things are just slipping away from people, even those who who know they're important. Meg, um you you devote a, a chapter to the science science of where we are in something you talk about when things come together not by accident it's not random it's something called emergence and can you say something about emergence and then the other way that we look at how things are uh, the reductionist science so can you say something about those two fields of study well, emergence is how life changes, and uh, it's the way that life creates new systems through relationships, but it has much more mystery to it and much more, many more problems to it because as different individual actions or different actors uh, or different species come into relationship with each other, so they're each doing their own thing, but then they form a relationship. And out of that relationship, something new and different emerges um, that does not look like or resemble the parts, the separate elements that created it. Now, this is, um, I think, most easily understood. My favorite example is to talk about chocolate chip cookies. So if you just take the separate elements of flour, salt, sugar, butter, eggs, and chocolate, none of them by themselves predict what a chocolate chip cookie <laughs> tastes like. You know? yeah. So that it's a wonderful example of an emergent set of, a set of properties that emerge through the combining of those separate elements. However, the, the uh, really powerful but also distressing part of emergence is that once you have the cookie, you can't change it by working backwards, by saying, well, I'll just sprinkle a little more flour on the top of it. Or, you know, it has too much butter, so I'll take out some butter. Once it's emerged, it is its own self. And you can't work backwards. And that's, uh, for those of us who've been trying to change these systems that have emerged, global culture has emerged, commercialism, materialism, these are all things that have emerged. Um, you can't change those systems and their problematic behaviors by thinking, well, I'm just going to work on one little piece of it. 
So this is the great compelling but fairly bad news for those of us who've been working all these years on trying to fix individual parts um, in order to shift away from a consumer culture or an aggressive culture or or whatever it is that we don't that we don't like at all in what's emerged. So you can't work backwards. You can only start over. We've been working, we've been looking at where we are using a map of of kind of taking apart everything and looking at these little parts over here and this part over there and this part over there. And you're saying it's not giving us the whole picture of where we are. So that's what you're encouraging. Well, I I think we have to notice that we are dealing with emergent phenomena because it, what often happens, and I observe this every single day in my colleagues and friends, is we think, well, we're doing our part, and if we just work a little harder or network a little better or learn some exciting new process or technique. If we just work harder, we will then succeed. So we create, we place the blame on ourselves. And so it's not until we step back and see the bigger picture and see that this is a culture that has emerged. It's not until we do that that we can relieve ourselves of the burden of blame, of thinking that we're, you know, we're at fault. Right. And another way that right. that shows up, and I just want to mention this because it really distresses me and I hear it a lot also, is people say things like, well, organizations are just made, you know, are collections of people, so we'll just change the people and we'll change the organization. Let's, well, let's go back to that bit bigger subject in just one moment. Okay. I'm with um, Meg Wheatley, Margaret Wheatley, and she's the author of So Far From Home, Lost and Found in Our Brave New World. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Meg Wheatley, and we're talking about the map of where we are, and she's the author of So Far From Home, Lost and Found in Our Brave New World. If you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, Margaret Wheatley, W-H-E-A-T-L-E-Y dot com, Margaret Wheatley dot com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Meg, we were just talking about organizations and the people who work in them and your concern about that. Can you say more? Well, this is the larger concern I have in that when we don't understand that 
how things change in life, which is through emergence, through the relationships among disparate parts, but then it creates something new. When we don't understand that, we get, uh, we take on blame, but we also assume that if we want to change something, we just have to change the individuals in it. So we're still working in a very reductionist, bit-by-bit kind of mode. I mean, one of the most common phrases out there these days is we're changing the world one person at a time. Well, that is not how life changes. It doesn't happen one thing or one person at a time. It happens when those individuals are in relationship and through their relationships a culture emerges. So when people say, well, organizations are only made up of individuals, so we'll just work on changing the individuals, that's not true. The organization has a culture now that um, that conditions people or, or pushes their behavior, as any culture does, in certain directions. And we don't change it by just retraining people or getting people to learn the skills of compassion or whatever. We really have to um, start over. And by that I mean we have to work where we are with what we have, with the people that we're already with, and try and establish not individual change, but try together to create healthier relationships using healthier values, using practices that we know motivate us as people, getting us engaged, uh, getting us thinking again. We have to work at not the individual change level, but where we are, and this is where I'm talking about, just work where you are with what you have and be content with that, we have to focus on relationships because out of those relationships, something new can emerge. This brings up the whole idea of the scientific studies on something called entanglement. Right. So can you say something about where that fits into this picture? Yeah, entanglement is is actually a technical term from um, quantum theory. It's also, at the human level, something that we uh, despise, that we think limits us. But entanglement at the, at the quantum level is the realization that we are not separate, as many spiritual traditions have said over and over again. Um, we are all connected. So quantum science can now demonstrate how the behavior of one electron instantly affects the behavior of a second electron that it was linked to, is paired up with. And this is the most compelling uh, news from quantum theory, and I'm not the one who's saying that. Even, Even when these electrons are spaced very, very far apart. That's correct. I mean, what we're starting to understand through quantum theory is that the universe is, is as one uh, astronomer said, it's more like a great thought than a great machine. It's instantaneous connections that happen faster than the speed of light, really. We've always thought that the speed of light was the ultimate measure, but now we're in this world of entanglement where we're never separated. Things happen 
instantaneously faster than the speed of light. It's called action at a distance, um, but there really is no distance. So what we do really affects others, and what they do affects us. That's right. And in the book, I also link that to what we're discovering from neuroscience about how what we do affects our uh, DNA, not our genes, but the rest of DNA, which now turns out to be a very uh, essential component determiner of hereditary, that our DNA changes because of our life experience. So we can pass on trauma. We can pass on um, bad behaviors that seem to have only affected us physically but then show up in our children. This is the whole field of epigenetics, um, which has really transformed our understanding of how heredity happens so that's one thing from the new science. I mean, there's several things from the new science that I think are worth noticing. One is entanglement. A second is how DNA is affected by the lives we lead. And then from neuroscience, it's how our brains comply and give us more capacity for the things we do habitually. So we are changing the physical structure of our brain um, if, if we're only focused on superficial things, our brains lose the capacity to think well. If we're only focused on um, scanning documents or rapidly, you know, blasting through the Internet looking for something, our brains create that, that skill capacity, but it has nothing to do with thinking, sense-making, or reflection. So what we're really understanding now from the world of science is that what we do matters and what we think about, what we do for actions, all of these things matter because life is constantly adapting and responding and we're not fixed beings and we're not isolated beings. So I think these are quite um, intriguing but also profoundly uh, disturbing. Let's talk about the Internet. First of all, is it really making us smarter? So the Internet is, is now really being understood. This is like the second generation or maybe the third generation critique of what the Internet is doing, not only to our brains, but to our expectations of relationships, to our expectations of life, what it's doing to social relationships, what it's doing to our workloads, what it's, it's, we're now into, uh, with enough experience of the Internet, of really being able to observe how, how desperately awful <laughs> it is in terms of brain function, memory, concentration, how, how difficult it is now in terms of social relationships, the social skills, of our youth are very distressing to most teachers. The whole idea of being entertained by things that you already want rather than being open and curious to what's new and different. The Internet seemed to promise us a world of uh, possibility of opening us to all this great new information I could not do my work without the Internet, so I'm not criticizing <laughs> I, me for too, that. Me too, me <laughs> too. But we do have to notice 
more than notice, we have to start to realize what the Internet, our, our frequent use of the Internet is doing to brain function, brain capacities, relationships, memory, um, and our ability to find meaning in life. I mean, so people are, you know, settling in on, um, can actively pursue online the things that already interest them. It's also thereby creating tighter and tighter communities with higher, uh, thicker boundaries. So we're getting more um, separate rather than connecting. You can connect to people around an issue or you can find love online, but what it's doing generally to our social skills and our ability to relate and our ability to be curious, it's very, very distressing. So, Meg, you're saying there, there's uh, less and less what I would call incidental contact, you know, that you're not mixing with a whole crowd of people and you just suddenly... Uh, something pops in that you never thought of before and it just sort of takes you over. But in this way, because we're so focused on what we're researching, we're only going to certain places. And it's, it's not only that. I mean, one of the things that stunned me, and I did include it in the book, was someone looked at a research methodology and the number of citations used by academic researchers now that, you know, you can look for everything online. And they found that, and they looked at 17 million articles, and they found that the number of, of citations for an academic article had actually decreased because people just migrate to what's popular. And, uh, and there's a lot of sorting that's going on in Google right now about what's, what's newest is best, as is the assumption. What's newest is best, and what's most popular is best. And that's simply not, you know, not necessarily true at all, especially in our hyper-popularity-crazed society, but that it's even impacting researchers to be less thorough and less open and have these, you know, surprising uh, occurrences and accidental meetings. I'm just relaying the critique, the critique that's being done right now by several wonderful writers and scholars is very, very compelling. Well, also, um, you talk about and remind us how when any new technology comes into a culture, uh, it it really affects us in very, very deep ways. I mean, we can go back to when uh, the the steam engine came in, that was a technology, and how it changed the culture, and now it's this uh, Internet and computers. Um, so can you say a few words about that? Well, technology always changes culture, and it's the values of the technology that become the cultural values. So in our age of technology, the values are speed and efficiency. And there are some other values added in there, such as now popularity and newness. But what those values of speed and efficiency do, how they impact us, even though we don't want them to. So uh, one of the examples that I... I see personally in myself is I can talk and write and speak and believe wholeheartedly in 
the value of relationships, the value of casual, open-ended conversation. Yes, those are my values, and that's been a big part of my work. However, when I look at my behavior, now that I have to deal with so many more distractions, so much more work just, you know, from emails and answering requests, and, and I'm just so much busier, as just about everyone is, uh, where are my values for casual conversation, for taking time for relationships? Where are those showing up in my behavior? Well, they're not. Let's let's talk more about that in just a moment. I'm here with Meg Wheatley. She's the author of So Far From Home, Lost and Found in Our Brave New World. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Margaret Wheatley. She's the author of So Far From Home, Lost and Found in Our Brave New World. Meg, we were just talking about values, how they're being expressed maybe is different than what you hold as valuable. Yes, and I think this is this is a work we all need to do. We need to look at whether it, if we observe our day-to-day life, are, are the things that we truly value um, manifesting? Or are we, like most people, highly distracted, overly busy, too exhausted <laughs> to even um, often notice that we're losing, um, in my case example, we're losing time for each other. Um, we don't have time just to pick up the phone and call a friend or we're losing time to be with our kids the way we want to be, or we're losing time for reflection or for prayer and meditation, things that we know renew us. They just sort of fade away, and suddenly we're not doing them anymore. And this is how it always is, that the technology, with its own values, in this case efficiency and speed, transforms us, even though we don't take those as core values. I mean, I don't put any value on efficiency and speed, but here I am working, trying to get through a long list of daily tasks, trying to deal with multiple demands, um, all because the technology has now made access um, so much, uh, it's just transformed the landscape so that we now all get a lot more emails, we get a lot more texts, we have to deal with whether we're on Facebook or not, but there's a lot more we have to do at a faster and faster rate of speed because the technology is available. So it's it ends up transforming us, even though we create it. And that's the really hard news, but it is the technological deterministic nature. Meg, um, one of the things that you do in the book that really gave a graphic picture of where we are and what we're dealing with. And you give a, a, an example of someone being in the wilderness and they're lost. 
Yes. In fact, that's the subtitle of the book, uh, Lost and Found in Our Brave New World. So they, they're lost and how they keep referring to a certain map. So can you describe what happens when someone's lost in the wilderness? Well, the reason I even talked about the behaviors of those lost in the wilderness was because it was such an accurate description of the kinds of behaviors I am continuing to observe in organizations, Um, which is when people are lost, the first thing they do is deny they're lost, but they get slightly more frantic in their actions. So there's some niggling sense of, well, I don't know if I know where I am. And so what we do is we walk faster, or if we're doing a project and it's not working out, um, we start working harder at it, or we um, you know, put in extra hours. So that's the first behavior when people are lost. When something's not working, we just do it faster. We don't question the fact that it's not the right work, it's not the right process. Um, and then when people recognize that they're lost, they start to deteriorate emotionally and rationally and they get more and more frantic. Well, I see a lot of those behaviors among us. And then once they're in this state of really decomposing capacities, um, what happens is they start to want to reassure themselves that they're not lost, so they grasp onto the slightest shred of evidence that will tell them that they still know where they are. And I feel that it's something we do a lot, those of us who are actively trying to change the world. We always can name specific practices or programs or individuals who are making a great difference. And so we we hold that up and say, see, it is going to change. It is working. But the way I view it, um, after a lot of years of dealing with this, is that, no, you are just, you don't, you're just behaving like a lost person. You're grasping on to the slightest hopeful piece of information rather than noticing that you have no idea where we are. Um, <laughs> and, and, of course, this is the common experience now where we all want stories that give us hope. Well, that's a false hope when you're really lost. We need new maps, and we need to understand where we are so that whatever work we do, we can be effective with it. But the effectiveness is not, in my estimation, that we're going to figure out how to change these very large systems right now. They are systems that have emerged. They are not changeable. What we need to focus on is noticing where we are because the ultimate relief or release from being lost, the movement into being found, is when you recognize you you are lost. And then the second thing is you recognize, well, we're not lost. We're right here. This is where we are. And once you fully face the fact of where you are, then you can open up to the very information you need that will help you get out of the mess you're in. So I I find this whole uh, analogy or metaphor of being lost and how to get unlost, I'm finding that is very, very helpful for all of us. Well, exactly. Um, And you mentioned something about hope. And that's a big subject in your book. Uh, In fact, you use a phrase, ambushed by hope. 
so tell me, uh, what do you mean about being ambushed by hope? Well, uh, that's a phrase from uh, the great Tibetan teacher, Chögyam Trungpa. And uh, for me, as I really contemplated it, hope is a false motivator because it always leads to disappointment. It always is accompanied by fear that you will fail or fear that it's not going to get better. So there is a place beyond hope and fear. And the ambush of hope is feeling that, well, I just have to feel optimistic. I have to feel hopeful. And and you get sucked into that. It's very enticing to see these hopeful examples. Um, so you start to feel really good, and then you're in the trap. You're ambushed. Suddenly it all disappears. Suddenly it's not as good as it seems. Suddenly you lose your funding. Suddenly politics takes over and destroys your good work. Um, so in order to avoid fear, we have to avoid hope. But there is a much uh, better place, this place beyond hope and fear that I'm really focused on now, which is just knowing that the work I'm doing is the right work for me to be doing no matter what. And I, I quote a lot from Václav Havel, the former president of the Czech Republic and a great poet and revolutionary, uh, who said that hope is not, you know, the the belief that something will turn out well, but the conviction that something is worth doing no matter how it turns out. And that's that's how I motivate myself these days, and I encourage others to. We need to find our right work, the work that in some ways chooses us. Um, and then we just do it because it's our work. And um, no matter what happens, we're free of that ambush of hope. We're free of fear, therefore. And we just continue to do the work as best we can because we know this is worth doing. This is my work. And I'm finding that is very satisfying and very motivating. So, Meg, in doing that, um, it's important, and I think that you, you talk about this in the book, that we have a company or a circle of friends, I call them um, uh, friends of the heart, who support us in our fullness, that these people are kind of walking with us, maybe not doing the project we're doing, but but we can call on them for for help or or for uh, to inspiration right this is essential um, in fact this is what I'm personally focused on for the next several months is what are the means and practices that can really bring us together in much tighter and supportive relationships because as the world gets more insane and more difficult and we encounter more disappointment and frustration and exhaustion and overwhelm. We need each other like we've never needed each other before. And um, how are we going to accomplish that? You know, this isn't casual relationship or casual friendships. I like your phrase, friendships of the heart. We have to be as connected to each other as soldiers are in warfare. Um, now, obviously, I'm talking about a kind of warriorship that doesn't use aggression and that's based on an, a 
appreciation and devotion to human capacity and human goodness. But I have to say that uh, that right now, the one place where I find that being there for each other, no matter what, is within the military. So with different values <clears throat> of compassion and generosity and and non-aggression, we still have to find out how we can be with each other, not to inspire, but not to motivate, but just be there because it's really hard work and it's hard to keep your equanimity. It's hard to refrain from aggression, yet that's our commitment and uh, we, we can't do this alone. We can't do this alone. And, and so uh, to have these relationships that um, keep us from falling into what the, the, the culture as a whole is trying to, is really imposing on us, such as um, uh, polar, the polarizing dynamics. We, we want to get on one side of the fence or the other and we start to get angry or we start to get, you know, more fixed in a position right. rather than, than that kind of looseness, that kind of porousness that just kind of takes it in without reacting. That's, that's absolutely true. And, um, and I'll keep saying it, it's very difficult work. It's going to take a whole level of discipline and devotion and diligence um, and perseverance for us to really uh, become what I'm calling warriors for the human spirit. I just, you mentioned perseverance. I just want to mention to our listeners briefly that you did a wonderful book prior to this book called Perseverance. And I've given it out to many friends and they, they, they use it kind of like an oracle and they just kind of open it in any place in, in any morning after their meditation and just get some beautiful words. So I, I just want to remind people of that, that wonderful piece that you did in that book. Yeah, and I'm actually pairing that book with So Far From Home, the newest book, because as one of my friends said, So Far From Home is the prequel to Perseverance. Uh. It's why I wrote Perseverance, because we do need daily support and daily refocusing. Um, So I, I think the book's go very well together. Thank you, yes. I'm speaking with Meg Wheatley. She's the author of Perseverance and also So Far From Home, Lost and Found in Our Brave New World. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Margaret J. Wheatley. She's the author of So Far From Home, Lost and Found in Our Brave New World, and also the author of Perseverance. Meg, let's talk about the path for warriors. Um, That word warriors calls up a certain image. And what do you mean by warriorship in a new, new way? Well, I know it's the, the word warrior it startles or even offends a few people because it has such a militaristic lineage to it. We associate it with aggression and, and conflict and war. But in Tibetan, the word is pawo, and it means one who is brave. And the bravery consists of being one who never uses aggression to accomplish what they need to accomplish. And I've added to that and said that we're also brave enough to try and not only refrain from the aggression and fear of this time, but we're brave enough to believe in human beings and human capacity, which, again, is counter the direction of of the global culture. So that kind of bravery um, is what is embodied in the term warrior for the human spirit. And, you know, every culture throughout history has had a class of warriors, people who were willing to undergo discipline and real training so that they could defend the faith or defend the leaders. And I just want us to enter into as a, as a group of dedicated people who in the midst of this this uh, despairing and and very dark cultural time um, that we're the ones who who will work as best we can in close relationship with each other to defend the human spirit because that's what's disappearing from uh, the world right now. If I look at which I do look at almost every day, what's going on in organizations, what's going on in social policy, what's going on in government and politics. It's a complete denial and denigration of what human beings are capable of or what we need. Um, We're being manipulated. Uh, We're part of a culture that, you know, has pushed us into a very narrow concept of what is happiness. But we're also working in organizations and leading our lives um, in, in ways that feel increasingly meaningless to us. And we're working, if we're working in a large organization, we're, we're suffering from a very brutal bureaucracy right now in which the basic belief is that people don't want to work, aren't self-motivated, and have to be punished into good behavior. And not only that, they have to be watched carefully, they have to file a lot of reports, they have to you know, comply with a lot of measures, all of which, uh, for me, is a direct consequence of leaders not trusting people. And, and we have created these overbearing bureaucracies that I call morbidly obese bureaucracies, which, in which you can't do good work, and, and more often than not, you just do the work to get the paycheck. So, but we've created those bad behaviors. So for those of us inside organizations, I'm asking us to be warriors for the human spirit, to step up to the fact that the larger system is demeaning and probably corrupted, 
but wherever we are, we can create islands of sanity. We can create these places where people feel appreciated, where there's self-motivation, where we can bring out our good qualities of being generous and forgiving and helpful and caring to each other. And that's, that's courageous work. I mean, it really is warrior work. And uh, I'm just thinking of um, in, in these organizations, they be, they're becoming more and more and more complex, and leaders are trying to or trying to hold on to some semblance of control, uh, but it, it's it's actually out of control in some ways. So you're saying we should be here in in this out of control situation. With us, bring a certain certain capacities to that. Yes, I mean everything I'm talking about is revolution, resistance, or standing up against what's going on. But not, you know, I support the larger revolutionary activities as long as they're not aggressive. But um, I think it's up to us wherever we are. Um, to be better human beings and to elicit better human qualities from each other. For me, it's very simple and straightforward. We need to do what we can where we are. Yeah, yeah. And you you have, like, questions that uh, you, you might, you give us examples of questions we might use when we're getting off the track, so to speak. So uh, you, you might say, I'll give you an example to remind you, um, how present was I for people today? What pulled me away from staying present? Yeah, well, this is a whole process. I mean, it's not so much the specific questions, but how do we watch ourselves? How do we become really self-aware and mindful? Because the dynamics out there are so powerful in the wrong direction. So in, so the example you gave of being present, well, if I want to be someone who's committed to being present, then I need to watch myself for that. If I don't want to be distracted, if I don't want to be annoyed when someone walks in my office and says, I'm sorry to disturb you, do you have a minute? Um, if I want to be present for whoever shows up in my office, for example, or with my kids, then I have to I have to check myself. I have to the process that I describe in the book is you just, in the morning, you set an expectation for the day. Okay, today I'm going to try and be present. Then at night you uh, just review in a loving way, not in terms of blaming yourself or feeling guilty for what a bad person you are, but simply as a way to notice, so where did I succeed today in being present? Where did I screw up? Um, and then this is really important that, to really offer some thanks to yourself that you're willing to look at your behavior because so few of us are these days. We're just rushing headlong to to disaster. And if we're people who are really willing to hold ourselves accountable for being warriors for the human spirit, then we should congratulate ourselves, right. you know, every day when we do that analysis. Yes. You know, Meg, also you, you point out how when we do that self-evaluation and look how we've been to others, you remind us that being kind to others is a very good thing, but how, we need to also look 
how we're being lovingly kind to ourselves. Can you say something about that? Well, I think taking on this role of Warriors for the Human Spirit is filled with risk, requires a lot of courage, and but it's a, it's a noble declaration of this is who I want to be for the world at this time. And instead of beating ourselves up for all our failures and lacks and feeling guilty, um, what I've learned from my Tibetan teachers is you should really congratulate yourself. <laughs> you should be praising yourself for being willing to take on this role and being willing to to try and stay awake. So this is a big shift from our Western culture of what's wrong with me and I'm such a bad person to realizing that I'm trying the best I can to really offer things that that are useful, that are helpful. Um, and let me thank myself on a very regular basis. You know, um, uh, the Buddhist teacher Pema Chodron says that her definition of, of being awake, of enlightenment, is when you have unconditional friendliness towards yourself. And uh, this is part of the warrior's path of really appreciating that we are trying to be brave, we're trying to be generous, we're trying to be forgiving, we're trying to be compassionate. These are all wonderful traits to cultivate, and we do need to to extend thanks and uh, compassion towards ourselves for being willing to take that on. And, and there, remembering our moments of delight and humor, what can you say about about noticing delight when it comes our way and bringing humor into the whole picture? Well, the uh, prophecy from the Hopi elders that I used in Perseverance, which is about a river running now very fast and those who will be destroyed by clinging to the shore, um, it said we should take nothing personally. (laughs) (laughs) Because the moment we take things personally, then our spiritual journey comes to a halt. And humor for me is an absolute survival necessity at this point. Um, we have to laugh at the insanity. We have to laugh at how crazy it is. Uh, because when we do laugh at these things, especially with other colleagues, it actually lets us go back in and deal with it. It's not like we then withdraw. We actually see it for what it is, see how ridiculous it is at one level. We've made fun of it, and then we go back in. So it really engages us further rather than takes us away. Yes. I mean, every spiritual teacher I've ever listened to stresses the need to have a sense of humor. Great. Meg, I want to thank you so very much for being with us today. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed it, Justine. Thank you. I've been speaking with Margaret J. Wheatley. She's the author of Perseverance and also So Far From Home, Lost and Found in Our Brave New World. If you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, margaretwheatley.com. And Wheatley is W-H-E-A-T-L-E-Y, margaretwheatley.com. Or you can go to the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3460.
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.